Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Basically, nobody made money on anything, which is how I came into Off-Broadway thinking that that's more or less the way it could and should be. We need to talk about songs. Somebody has to make conversation. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Bob Ost. And welcome to Theater Resources Unlimited. This is our Friday community gathering. We've been doing this since April 17th. 2019, uh, 2020, I'm sorry, as a response to COVID, the gift that keeps on giving. So here we are. We thought we were at the end of COVID and we thought that things were going to be reopening again. And COVID, that sly devil has come up with a new variant called Omicron. And I've even heard that there were other new variants that have come up as well. So as much as we'd hoped to be in a new normal or in a normal, we're still fighting this and we're still trying to all stay healthy. Hopefully, all of us are getting our vaccine vaccinations and are getting our boosters. People who don't want to for different reasons, I just want to remind you to think about other people. You may not be considering yourself at risk if you get it. You may think that it's just going to be mild for you, but do you really want to spread it to somebody who might be vulnerable? You, you don't know who's vulnerable and who's not. So have a conscience, and if at all possible, Find it in your heart to to get vaccine vaccination so that we can eventually reach herd immunity, which we've been striving for for so long. So we've gone through so many steps in this terrible pandemic. All of us were shell-shocked for the first couple months trying to figure out what to do and how to function in a pandemic and in isolation. So we talked a lot about isolation. We talked about creating art and continuing to be creative during this period of shutdown. And then lately, we've been talking a little bit more about making the transition into live theater. So today, we're really not going to talk that much about COVID, other than to mention the fact that we know it's there and it's really been a pain in the neck for us. I'm going to bring in an honored guest, somebody that I've admired for a long, long time. And his name is Eric Krebs. And almost everybody in theater knows who he is. And almost everybody in theater in some ways, had him touch their career over the years, over many, many years. Uh, I'm going to bring him into the room right now, and we're going to talk a little bit about him and why he does what he does and how he started doing it. Uh, So without any further ado, or without any further intro, here is Eric Krebs. Eric, welcome to True. Welcome to the community gathering. Uh, I'm so pleased, so pleased that you're, that you're here with us and so, so happy to have you. I know that you have an illustrious background, and I know that 
you would rather just chat than talk about all the many things that you've done. The conversation that I'm planning today has to do with the journey that you've gone through, if, if it's okay with you. You've seen an evolution of theater uh, from when you first started to what it is now. There have been so many changes. The easy question would be, how is off-Broadway theater different now than it was back when you started? But I think that it's not that simple. I think it's been a constant change, constantly changing environment for the development of work. Can we start off by finding out if you agree with that, basically? It's a constantly changing environment. It's a constantly changing world of creative people that's very exciting for me to even be a part of. Do I understand how it's evolved over the years? I'm happy to talk about that a little bit. I think yes. it mostly, mostly has to do with money. The first show I did off-Broadway in New York was The Passion of Dracula at the Cherry Lane Theater in 1977, which was the same month that Frank Langella opened in Dracula on Broadway. We paid $625 a week for the Cherry Lane Theater. We paid about $40 a week for equity actors to do seven or eight performances a week. Basically, nobody made money on anything, which is how I came into Off-Broadway thinking that that's more or less the way it could and should be. We do it because it's our art. We hope it will work and impress people. And I must admit, in the last couple of months, I've been thinking to myself, now, why do you do this, Eric? And is it important enough in the world to be doing this? So I've come a really long way from my bright-eyed, bushy-tailed years when as a 23-year-old, I went to the Cafe Chino on Cornelia Street. I was the last espresso machine runner of the Cafe Chino. And if you don't know what the Cafe Chino was, go read up. And I came in because of the enormous uh, creativity and the enormous diversity and the enormous energy of everybody casting their lot into this world of creative, interesting, imaginative people that were not primarily ever interested in it for the money. That's been one of my great faults as a producer, that I'm always, I think, I hope, uh, as interested or more interested in what's creative about it, what's it saying, who's it connecting to, then is it going to make money? Because God knows I've had my share of shows that have not made money. Well, let's, let's, start, let's start with what, was, what were your original goals when you came here at age 23? When you were a little I, boy, did you say, I want to be a theater owner when I grow up? Never. Never, uh, of course. Astrophysicist, solar scientist, and oh, by the way, I love poetry. I bet I could write some. Oh, look at that. The writing teachers in high school like what I write. Oh, look at that. There's a terrific show I went to called West Side Story. Huh, maybe I could get involved in that world. Look at that. My high school's doing our town and they cast me in one of the roles. What a beautiful community. Look at that. Well, I guess I won't be a solar scientist after all. I'll head into this community of creative, connected people that always was so supportive and inclusive. And uh, it was finding that community that led me into being first a poet, then a playwright, then a playwright who wanted his work produced, couldn't find anybody to produce it, so he produced it himself. 
And that's how I got here. Well, we are very much uh, supporters of what we refer to as self-producing artists. Um, we have a whole coterie of self-producing artists. We, we always use, like to use the, the anagram spa because producing yourself is so incredibly relaxing. Uh, so, right. so, so we have spa, we, we have people that are in spa. And in fact, a lot of the, a lot and probably most of the people in the room are self-producing artists as well. So I think it's very heartening for them to hear that that's, that's how you started and that's where you started. Yeah, I also thought that it was silly to wait around to find somebody to produce me. And I started producing myself. That was in the 90s, in the early 90s. What was, what was it that made you decide that you could run a theater? You took on some really big projects, some really big things for somebody that wasn't interested I, in it for the money. I, uh, I began at age 19 going up to Provincetown, Massachusetts, and going out on the wharf to see where Eugene O'Neill started in the Provincetown Playhouse. I was an intern there for the summer. I used to work there from three in the afternoon till midnight or one, and then work as a short order cook at the Provincetown Inn from 7 a.m. till three, seven days a week for a whole summer. And boy, did I prefer the theater to the short order cooking. <laughs> so I uh, ended up in Provincetown meeting some people. And the next summer I went back there were two guys opening a space they were going to call the act four at the gifford house on bradford street and we dug out the basement to get enough height to have a coffee house theater that was my 20th summer year and i actually got into i called it producing because that's i guess what we were doing we just didn't know it and we started doing plays there that's how i got into having a theater then a year or two later, uh, when the two guys I was in business with, that's a, a euphemism, the two guys that I was in theater with were standing at uh, with screwdrivers at each other's bellies saying, come on, take one step further. I said, you know, I can do better than this. And I went back to New Brunswick, New Jersey, where I was a graduate student in a PhD program in English. I rented a $500 a month former pharmacy stripped it out and began Brecht West on about $2,500, which like now would probably be $25,000, but still the point. And we started doing plays with local people, with a few people I knew in New York, a few people I'd met in Provincetown who would come out and do a major role. They used to make $15 a performance and bus fare. And among those who came out to Brecht West were uh, Al Pacino directing Rats, uh, John Casali in, uh, and Ann Wedgworth in a play called Soon Jack November. Because uh, they just loved the theater. It was like the scruffy old days of off-off Broadway, and there they came. That's how I got into producing. That, uh, there's, it sounds like you have, there's something that you knew how to do that a lot of us don't. You, you no, seem to know no, the, you, I knew how to. I knew how to do nothing. But you I converted mean, I, a space. You must have figured something out very quickly. I said, there's, there's a space with a for rent sign. Let's go in and see what it looks like. Oh, it's for rent. It's a pharmacy. Well, we could clear that out. And uh, so we did. Well, I guess we need lighting. How do you do that? Well, up in Provincetown, they used to use those little clip-on lights with aluminum foil around them on zip cord. Well, we could do that. So we made a lighting system for a couple hundred bucks out of uh, clip-on lights. Well, what are we gonna do? I don't know, what play do you like? Why don't we do some important stuff like uh, 
Dutchman by Leroy Jones. That'll, that'll be a real crowd pleaser. <laughs> uh, or maybe we can do a, a, a Beckett. You know, one of the earliest playwrights we ever had there was a young guy named Terrence McNally with two one-act plays called Botticelli and Cuba C. And uh, he came out and we did his plays for next to nothing. But I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know about fundraising. I didn't know about not-for-profit. I just kind of did it. And when somebody said, well, you should look into the not-for-profit funding of the New Jersey State Council on the Arts. I said, what's that? By the way, some of you will remember, I got to go back to this moment. Guy named Fred Vogel. Fred Vogel founded the uh, Commercial Theater Institute. But before that, he had CDAPT, Foundation for the Extension and Development of the American Professional Theater. And I think Joe Melillo, who you may know through Brooklyn Academy Music, was working for him at the time. He came out and looked at my little theater I had in New Jersey, and he really set me up with the following conversation. And I give this to all of you who would start a small theater. He said, interesting that you want to do this. What's your budget? What's your mission? What's your staffing? What's your audience? How are you going to market it? What's your promotion? How are you going to deal with unions? How are you going to deal with health care? How are you going to deal with insurance? And how are you going to get people in to see your show? When you have all that worked out, then talk to me again. Fred was a very good friend of mine. Fred was actually the first guest I've ever had at True. Well, his comment to me was 20, 28 best, years ago. One of the yeah, best he, things that was ever said to me because he was right. Well, Fred, Fred was the one that leaned over to me after an evening uh, in my living room with, with people who had gathered because they wanted to talk about how hard a time they were having. Nothing has changed. He leaned over to me and said, Bob, you have people in this room who are producing commercially and not-for-profit. You can't do that. I said, what do you mean? He said, they don't talk the same language. I didn't listen to him. It was basically, to me, producing was producing. Basically, everybody over the past 20 years definitely crosses the line between the two areas. And what has that is one thing that has evolved in the past 20 or 25, 30 years is outside commercial enhancement of developing projects in the not-for-profit sector. A very complex and important creative part of what's going on. And it happens all the time. The trouble is... If you don't find an outside producer with money, oftentimes your show can't get done. So you have to choose a certain kind of show that a commercial producer is willing to take a chance on. So that determines somewhat the material that people can present or produce yourself and assume that you're going to have a great time doing it and nobody's going to much care about it. <laughs> um, and you may not even break even. Um, no, you won't break even. You will not break even. Okay. So let's go. Let's go back to your history. I still think that you're you're a a driving force in theater. You really are somebody that a lot of people look up to. So that uh, Brecht, what do you, what it was it called? Brecht West. Brecht West. Brecht West. Did that evolve into George Street? Because I know that George well, Street. Kind was of yes, way. kind of no. I ran it for a couple of years. Then I left New Brunswick, went into New York to begin to work off Broadway. And I turned it over to somebody else who ran it for a couple of years. And then I realized what regional theater was as opposed to off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway in New York. And I said, you know, Rutgers University will support a theater if it's done out there with, with care and uh, you know attention. So I went back because I was still a graduate student. I never did finish my PhD in English literature. 
Uh, I went back and started a theater while I was still a graduate student at George Street Playhouse and uh, made it work again. Believe it or not, I rented a supermarket, a former supermarket, and the rent was, I think, about a thousand or twelve hundred dollars a month for a ramshackle old building. We got theater seats from a a movie house down the block that was going to be demolished for the new Johnson and Johnson headquarters. We got 250 theater seats out of there, moved them up in a van, probably my station wagon as I think of it. And that's how we built it. So yes, Brex West was sort of a precursor, but not the same organization as George Street. Where did you find these people that you were working with? How did you find people to, to indulge you in, in this, in this uh, wild well, fantasy? As we all, we all know this, I feel so much of what I'm saying is what all of this group, wonderful group already knows, which is you hang on to every contact and you use it as you can and let them know what they're doing and maybe they'll come and help you. One of the earliest people to come out to George Street Playhouse in New Brunswick, New Jersey, 45 years ago was somebody who had known me very, very slightly from a reading in New York. And he heard that I was doing a theater in New Jersey and he said he wanted to come out and help Dan, uh, Dan Loria. Dan Loria, who's now, of course, played Lombardi on Broadway. And he came out 45 years ago and helped hang lights and put up insulation because he thought the idea of starting a theater was really cool. So how do I find those people that often oftentimes they show up because they need the community. They uh, are drawn to a community as I was all the way back in high school because the community of theater is so wonderful. It doesn't always pay well, which is why I went into academics and became a professor for 50 years to pay my way. So I always had the two careers. But most of you already know that. You have to make your way in something else. Am I answering your question? Absolutely. I'm just, I'm just going to keep keep moving the narrative forward. Please um, go ahead. So what, was, what happened between George Street and how did you come to start creating the John Houseman and the Douglas Fairbanks. Well, when you're in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and you're trying to do shows with professional performers, you always need rehearsal space. So I went up and down the space on 42nd Street, right near Playwrights Horizons, which Bob Moss was starting to turn into a theater row uh, setup. What, what, year, what year was that? Oh, Lord, 74. Okay. 75. So I met Bob Moss then, and uh, he was he was turning one of those 99-seat porno houses into Playwrights Horizons. And he said, you know, down the block, just across the exit from the Lincoln Tunnel, there's a guy named Bill Condren who's taken over some of the real estate. They built a couple of shells for theater, but they don't know what they're doing with it, and there's nobody there to take it. So I got in touch, looked, went over, was actually looking for rehearsal space, and ended up renting the concrete shell that became the Douglas Fairbanks Theater. Did I know what I was doing? Of course not. <laughs> Did I know anything about architects and expediters and permits and public assembly permits and uh, everything you can think? Of course not. Did I know? I think, about I think this is where I'm supposed to come in and tell the room, don't try, don't try this at home. <laughs> well, no, you have to try it. You, you, everybody has to try it. Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, with with the, with the support of of people that that can tell them, but, like Fred gave you the list of things you needed to think yeah. about. And the difference is money, money, money. Uh, I did believe it or not, the first installation of the Douglas Fairbanks Theater, which for those who may not know, was a lovely 199 seater uh, uh, 
right near Dyer Avenue on 42nd Street. I think my rent was about 6000 a month and my complete renovation cost, and we did the renovation for the most part, uh, was $125,000. <laughs> we found the seats uh, at a used seating place. Uh, we lugged them in ourselves. We we did everything, you know, the building, the painting, the dressing rooms, the walls. How, the, how many of you were there? Because it's just, this sounds so impossible. How, how many well, people did you have helping you? Uh, we probably had about, if this was not free labor, by the way, it was just extremely well-designed and very simple. And we, we paid everybody. I don't know at that time what it was, five or $7 an hour or something. And there were five or six people who worked on it about four months and we got it done. Wow. And um, then, so what, I, I, so I, am I, am I right though? Was, was that the step? Was it from George, George, George uh, street went to, Douglas Fairbanks and and John Houseman. Yeah, George, uh, George Street Playhouse, of course, was the not-for-profit, still going, that I stayed with till 1986. But in around 84, I went and found the space that became the Douglas Fairbanks, took a long-term lease on it, raised some money through my first limited liability company, the wonderful agent Milton Goldman, who some of you may remember, uh, happened to be from New Brunswick, New Jersey. And he was introduced to me because I was working in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And he introduced us to any number of people, including who Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Put up a lot of money to help make the thing happen. And we named it the Fairbanks. Uh, uh, just the connections. It's all about the connections. But you all know that. I mean, that's what it is. Well, we may know it, but it's good to hear it. And then... Um, uh, after that, a couple of years later, they had the great big shell where the Houseman was down the block, which became a 287-seat theater. It was supposed to be a dance theater. It was actually built for a dance theater that couldn't raise any money to make it happen. And so I more or less did the same thing on the Houseman, although that was rehearsal spaces and studios downstairs, offices upstairs, and a 287-seat grander theater. And that was about a million and a million and a quarter. I actually mortgaged my house to get, be able to borrow some of that money and almost lost my house a couple of years later when it wasn't paying its way. And we don't talk about that in this very house where I'm sitting now. But that's what I did. What, what you did for love. What I did for love. Yeah. Um, so now I, here's, a, here's a question. I really hope maybe we can have some interaction on this or people go on the chat or email me directly, what we do for love. Okay, I did that for love at 23, 29, 38, 42, while everybody else was in the, uh, the, the world of banking and finance and making their lots and lots and lots of money. And uh, sometimes I think to myself, Eric, that was a really big mistake. You should have made some money and then been able to go in this as an uh, adult at age 45, not having to struggle every step of the way. And I mean, this is now way off track. That's okay. Given the world we're in, the homeless, the poverty stricken, the other issues we're watching, the, the uh, Im impossible ways in which black people are squashed down in our culture, by our culture. And, and I think to myself was doing Theater that seemed so important every month, really a good life choice. I'm actually having that dialogue with myself 
every week, every day. And no, I don't I, have an answer. It's just that's where you get when you're 77 and looking at a life. And I don't have an answer for that. Why do we do theater? I'd love to hear your responses. The, okay, so everybody, actually, you can do a, a virtual hand raise, and then I can call on you, or you can put a question into into the chat, and we'll, and we'll call on you. But but Eric wants to have a dialogue, so talk to him. Well, I, 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 I will I will tell you, Eric, that that I I go through very much the same thing that you're that you're talking through. I did have a career. I had a career in advertising, but I spent a lot of time in theater, and I I've spent the last twenty five years running true, and. I do feel good about it. I think I feel like I think there were other things I could have done. I feel like I've I've accomplished things. Eric, you've touched many many lives. I'm sure people have told you this before, and it still probably hasn't stuck. You still continue questioning it. You did what you were supposed to do. That's what you were here for. And you're there's something within you that knew that, and you just it just drove you forward. It sounds like you were incredibly driven to do what you did, and to do it without without even wondering whether without, you should be without, doing anything else without, without thinking about without it. thinking about it yeah you did <laughs> so don't you think maybe something within you was, was is well was, was responding to a call I, i'm very aware i've touched a lot of lives both in teaching and in theater uh i always work out of the point of view of it is the giver who should be thankful and i am very thankful i've been able to help along the way but hey, if I've got a space and it's not being used, go do something there. Or if you're calling me up about how to produce something and you don't quite know, well, ask me. I'll be happy to tell you I've been there. I mean, it's not brain surgery. It's just being being humane in our in our wonderful circle of theater people. I don't quite know why I'm talking to this group. Half of them probably have more experience than I do. Uh-huh. And it's sort of like. But I'm delighted to. It's different experience. I'm a delighted to pretend. You're you're what they call a mover and a shaker, um, and Michael's going to shake his hand at me if I don't let him talk. Go ahead, Michael. Michael, Michael Colby. Oh yeah, I I feel like um, Eric should see a double feature of The Great McGinty, Beyond uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I feel like we do what we need to do, and I feel like Eric has. Uh, affected and helped so many lives and helped promote art. And uh, I know I'm very grateful to him. And uh, if, if you want to rerun your whole life, you can do that and question this and that, but you've achieved a great deal and, and that's what's important. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I know it's important. I'm just... You know, Mr. The Great McGinty, the Preston Sturgis film. In I, I know of it, but I don't know it. Well, it's about um, a director who feels he's wasted his life working in comedies. And then he goes and... No, Sullivan's, Sullivan's Travels. That's why we're confused. I'm sorry. I mean Sullivan's Travels. Okay. Yeah. They're both by Preston Sturgis. But um, in Sullivan's Travels, he goes to this camp where a lot of unfortunates are watching his movie and laughing and feeling good about themselves. Yeah. So, so today is part true community gathering and part this is your life. So, well, so. I'm just in that moment, you know, being at the back of a house behind the last row, never sitting in the audience, just always being around the audience and watching the response is, yes, one of the highlights of 
not only producing, but of my life and the joy in my life to say, I, I made that. I made that. And that's really wonderful. I have a lot of hands raised. So, so let's go to, let's go to Marty Goldman. Uh, did you want to come into the room or did you want to? No, I, I'm actually doing what you said you were thinking about your choice. I'm 60 years old and I had a whole different career in real estate. And my wife has discovered acting in the same way where the total non-theater people begin to get into this community. And it's wonderful that it exists. So I think there are a lot of different paths that people take into this. And, I, and I'm starting in a different world. And some of it drives me absolutely crazy because I, I run a business and theater is not a business, but it is. And it's crazy the way people operate, but it's wonderful. And I think there are lots of different paths. If I may, for a moment, one of the great frustrations in my life in the last couple of months is really wealthy, oldish, white guys who've never done theater coming and saying, I would like to present my show and I have the money to do it. And I think it's the best thing that's been written in years. <laughs> and I've been I've had that scenario at least three or four times in the last two months. My only response is you don't know what you're doing yet. Mm -hmm. Go slowly and don't throw your money around because everybody will take it and you will lose it. We just had a show at the new theater 555 on 42nd Street called The Turtle on a Fence Post, capitalized between a million and a half and two million by a very nice and well-meaning old rich white guy, younger than me, by the way, so I better watch what I say. And he was a lovely guy, but he just wouldn't say no, and he didn't know what he was doing, and he thought he knew how to do it, and he took a terrible bath. So why am I telling you that, Marty? Go slowly. Call me anytime. I'll tell you anything I know. Well, I appreciate that. Okay. I'm actually I'm working huh. at a nonprofit, so I'm learning that. Gallery, gallery of Players. Gallery of Players. Yeah. And oh, great. Yeah. I'm learning from the ground up. I'm like a kid in the candy store learning a new There you thing. are. It's a way to do it. So, Eric, how is, your, how is your voice holding up? It's fine. I don't mind going on. Okay. So Yesterday, so, I had no voice whatsoever, but now this is okay. Okay. So, Mar Marty, I'm going to ask you to turn your video off. I'm going to ask Arlene to come in and, and, talk, and talk, to, talk to Eric. Arlene Corsano? There you are. There I am. Hi, Eric. I just love your story. And, and I'm thinking, gee, maybe I could have done that. But no, I couldn't have. Yeah, um, actually, it's, it's funny, Eric. I mean, all, all that you're saying and you're, you're questioning it. Everybody else in the room is just as much questioning their choices. We all we all make choices. We do our whole lives. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've, I I've, I've had some questions. I've been questioning it. For me, the question is whether I whether I sacrifice my myself as a playwright um to to be run true but i feel like i'm fulfilling a purpose so i'm actually content with my choice uh but i i think it was best as as i got through this to do it the way i did i became a teacher first because my mother said that's a good thing to do no matter what happens you can teach and uh and where i taught i had to write a play or do a play with with the students every year and i chose to write my own and Wonderful. I enjoyed doing that, writing around what kids I had, what talents I had, uh, and making sure everybody got to do, you know, as much or as little as they wanted. So I just enjoyed that. And then I retired at 51. And for the past over 20 years, I've been doing, I started with cabaret acts when I saw somebody doing something that she, she was a big name singer at one point when I was younger and she was doing something really terrible. And I said, I, I got to 
fix this. And I, I did. And I did. I did. I did. They did it in Japan. I did all of it in, in this area in, in, in Manhattan and Harlem and the Bronx. And, and so I was happy with that. And then I met a woman through her that was is a songwriter who is not uh, not. Not well, there's a, there's an interesting story. How does how do you think Rose uh, Rosemary would would feel about what Eric's Eric is saying? Does she look at her at herself and question her choices? Oh no, no. She she you know she knew what she wanted, and she she had the patience and uh, to to go through what she did. I mean, from a very poor black uh, uh, a, a farmer's daughter in in Arkansas to coming here and waiting ten years to work. She wanted to be a singer, really. And then, she, then her songwriting hit, and she wrote for like Elvis and Nat King Cole and Sarah Vaughan. I mean, multiple right. songs for them. And um, she uh, she is the one who told me because I, I I wrote something in a when I after I retired I was doing all different things in a, in a little newspaper, and people started calling her up. There's a lot of people live in North Jersey that were musicians or singers, and they all saw this. And she says, "Oh." You're going to make me famous again. And she kept telling people every time she introduced me, she says, Arlena, she's called me Arlena. Arlena is going to make me famous. And I said, I can't do that. And I'm still doing that and not making money, but it's fine because I, because I have a pension. Hey, I never made money working for true. I mean, we, I, I won't tell you what I take, take a week. Um, I had other sources. I had other sources of income though. Can I bring Glenn Borders in now? Glenn, are you there? I am here. Hello, are. Eric. Good to good to see you again. Howdy, howdy. I first met you. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Way back, um, we I was working at Playwrights Horizons, and we moved Driving Miss Daisy to the Houseman Theater. Right. And I was the crew chief, and I moved it there. Um, and you were around a lot, and you and I just started chatting. Every week we just chat and you became an inspiration and I would just come go to your office and look for you. And you were always just so open. You know, I, the door was open. You were you were such an inspiration because you allowed me to just come in and pick your brain and talk to you about just stuff. And um, and I, that always stood out to me for my, my entire life, which is when I found out you were here tonight. I had to be here and thank you for that, because um, That's very, one of the very important for me to hear. Yeah, because you because I was talking about shows that I wanted to do, and you did say, "Do it yourself." And so now I I'm producing. I'm part of the master program. I've done my show. I told you the last time I saw you, the day. Remember the last time we saw one another? The last blackout that happened, and I came to your theater, and you had to shut down that day. I was coming oh, to see uh, your show. I spy, I spy at St. Clements. Yeah, exactly. And I hadn't seen you in years, and I had no idea you were there. And we kind of stood on the stairs and talked for a while. And it was just very cool to see you again. And again, you've been such an inspiration to me. And thank you for all you do. And I'm sure everyone feels the exact same way. I, oh, I, we, even, I, we even did a, um, a sketch show, Midsummer Night Scream, I think it was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we did pretty, pretty good, too, with that. You know, it was fun. Along the way, along yeah. the way, yeah. But thanks, I've, thanks so much. It's so good to see you. I've, I've, I've had a hand in producing, I suppose, between two and three hundred shows, all the way from Midsummer Night Scream to uh, laughing liberally on stage to Tuli Dumagude. Does anybody remember Poppy Nongaina back in the seventies? No. 
that that was a wonderful South African play. The woman who played Poppy Nongena at the Fairbanks Theater is still a friend. In fact, I heard from her the other the other day from South Africa. Uh, I've been assisting her in her daycare center food programs for her community in Soweto. Thirty five years later, forty years later, here she still is. Anyway, not me. Let's talk about you. Uh, well, I want to. I want to bring Greg in, but first, I actually want to. I want to go to to a point. When you look at your at your career, what is the word that you use to describe who you were for all these years? Is it producer? Is it was producer that what you most? Oh, you mean with? The description of what I do? Yeah. <laughs> I I live in the theater. I live in the theater. Whatever and whatever that presents, you take you you uh, you address carpet it. Carpet has to be vacuumed. You vacuum the carpet. If somebody has to be picked up at the airport, you figure it out. If it costs too much to deliver something, as something recently came up, it was seven hundred and fifty bucks to deliver it from South Jersey. I said, "Don't deliver it. I'll come pick it up." It's only an hour and fifteen minutes each way. Save seven hundred and fifty bucks. That's one aspect of what I do. The other aspect of what I do, every time I meet somebody who has an interesting project, I want to hear about it. I met an Iraqi rap American kiddo a couple of months ago, and I said, wow, it sounds great, whatever it is you're doing. Why don't you come do a night do a night at my new space, and let's all look at it together. Um, that was that's exciting. I love to do that. Now, please don't all ask me to give you the space for your new project. It's, I've already you know, asked. You said no, but, but I well, I have to. It's supported. It's very expensive. Yeah. But but why well, don't I describe what I've done? Well, two two things come to mind. I'm not a big time producer. I'm not a Kevin McCullum. I'm not a Bob Wankel. I'm not a Roy Furman. I don't have that kind of resources or that kind of ability to raise money. So I always come back to the notion of my favorite Emily Dickinson poem. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Don't tell them. They'll banish us. How tiresome to be somebody preaching all day to an admiring bog. How something or other. How like a frog. And I kind of position myself as I've never been a big major producer. I can't get a Broadway house if I want one. I don't, you know, I don't raise 12, 14, 18, 28 million dollars, but but I've lived in this community, and that's why I'd rather have us have it back and forth talking than have you listen to me bloviate because we're all in it doing the same thing. Well, I Bob, can I just say one last thing and then I'm and then I, I'll take turn off my video. Okay. Well, your, Miss- video, your video's never off, Glenn. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. The Driving Miss Daisy I'm talking about is the original Driving yeah. Miss Daisy with Morgan Freeman and Dana Ivy. Yeah. We did it first at Playwrights to Rise, and then we moved down the street. Yep. So uh, so it's not an offshoot. It's, this was the original baby. You think Morgan Freeman will have a future? I, You know. He's promising. Yeah. Sorry, Bob. Go ahead. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. What I never got to to say, and I, I'm, I know Greg is waiting to come in and and, and ask you or say something, but um, what I never, what I what I never, thanks, Greg. What I never got to ask you was, what was it like when Theater Rogue came in and took over your block? Um, <laughs> well, that was a big that was a big shift for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I ran the 
Fairbanks, 25 years, and the Houseman, 23 years. People say to me, man, you must have done really well on those buildings. No, I didn't. The real estate interest did. Although, let, let's actually say that one of your theaters was the home of nonsense. <laughs> yeah, or, nonsense. And I, it was fine. And every, every dime I ever took in, I put into productions that I lost money on. I've never taken money out of my theater career. I've only always lived from my teaching. Believe it or not, I can honestly say I never took a paycheck from my theater career, ever. You're probably astonished to hear that because everything I, everything I earned, I do a next show, Little Ham, which was at the house when I lost stupidly because one doesn't put one's own money in $270,000. And that was, well, such a, that was such an odd situation because when it, when it first opened, it got this great review in the Times. And then the when same it reviewer came back and panned it. And not only that, contradicted himself on at least three issues specifically. Anyway, we were, let's, not go, let's not go there. We'll but get we, were, we were all stunned. Everybody uh, thought that it was a sure thing. It, you, you, were, uh, you were opening it commercially with, with the Times Review that was so solid. And then, yeah. yes, the, the schmuck goes and blows it. There's, there's a story there, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it right now. Okay. I am, only thing I'm, the only thing I'm upset that I never did is I didn't punch him in the mouth. <laughs> I went to Encores about two years later, and I passed Bruce Weber in the lobby. And as I walked by him, he said, oh, hello, Mr. Krebs. Are you still talking to me? I wish I had punched him in the mouth at that moment. I would have been now a real legendary figure rather than just another guy. No, you're a legendary figure. Don't, don't, I, don't miss But I didn't punch him in the mouth. I didn't punch him in the mouth. I should okay. have. Any of you friends of his, you can tell them that story. It's okay with me. <laughs> I uh, don't know. What was it like leaving the house yeah. in Fairbanks? Well, a lot of you don't know that this was already 18 years ago when we left those. It seems like yesterday, but it's a long time. It was okay because, because it had gobbled my life up for 23 years. Uh, it had given me an enormous number of wonderful contacts, many of which I still have, and made people think I was a grand poobah or something. And I just knew that it was going to be a, a real estate deal at some point, and it was. The uh, real estate those two theaters sat on was sold for $110 million dollars to the related companies that put up the grand MIMA building that is there. And as a part of it, the new signature theater, which uh, is exactly where the old houseman was. So the whole thing was, it's how life goes. I know that leases expire, relationships end. It's, it's okay. I don't know, is that an answer? It's, it's, it's an answer, yeah. It, it was is. sad, they were oh. beautiful theaters. Do you think that Theater Row uh, changed the business of Off-Broadway in any way? Do I think the that Theater Row, the long-term development issue, or Theater Row, the current uh, building for the arts building that hosts what they call Theater Row? Um, well, actually, the, the original one. Thank going you, because I don't, I don't wish to talk about the other particularly. Theater Row was just a wonderful, um, enlightened, fabulous, far-looking, imaginative idea. Bob Moss looked at these cruddy old places, said they should be theaters again, because they started as theaters when Irving Maiden had 
several small theaters there. And uh, it was a wonderful vision. I don't know what else to say about it except, you know, good for him and it transformed the neighborhood and it gave rise to my theaters down the block, which gave rise to the $110 million sale to related companies and the new signature, which is quite wonderful. So it was just a vision, a visionary. Now, did, have I missed any steps after theater, after your show, your theaters closed? What was, what was your next, what was your next endeavor? What was the next thing oh, that you did? Well, for about four or five years, I just had an office over on 46th street, tried to do things, produce stuff out of town, produce stuff in various spaces. You produced, with something, you produced something with Randall Reggett. You produced uh, a lecturer, didn't you? Uh, actually, Randall Reggett produced something with me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I went to McCarter Theater in Princeton and saw Electra the last weekend of its run in 1999, late September, I think. 30 producers had turned down the idea of moving it. And as my wife often says to me, I knew you were really going to get involved because you stayed awake. <laughs> and uh, and I did. And I picked up the rights and I moved it to uh, to Broadway. We opened in about December 10th. Why, who would not open Greek tragedy on Broadway on de in December? I mean, of course, that's what you do. But I moved it the way that I can move it. And now here's part of my reputation of what I say to everybody. I moved a 10 character. I think it was 10 with one set that didn't move with with the designers from England and the stars that we want to make are from England. I moved it to a Broadway house for an $800,000 capitalization. And I opened it for 575,000. That sounds crazy, of course, but why? Because I said, no, 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 no. Here's how we're gonna do it. First thing I took a theater that was only available for eight weeks. I said, okay, we'll go there for eight weeks and see what happens. So I got a really good deal on the theater. Then I took the set from McCarter Theater and they were partners in it, by the way, they contributed so many of the technical stuff and the rehearsal time and so on. We took the set from McCarter Theater. It wasn't a union built set, it had to be passed through a union shop. Oh, Paper Mill Playhouse, retooled the staircase and stamped it all union made so it could get loaded into the theater. I told the cast, which was coming from all over the place and the designers, we get into the theater, we load in on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We don't work over the weekend because it costs more. Monday, we dry tech. Tuesday, the company comes on, having just finished this run eight weeks ago in Princeton. Wednesday, we have our tech. Thursday afternoon, we have our dress. And Thursday night, we play our first preview for a paying audience. They began on Tuesday, they performed on Thursday. It's astonishing, and everybody said, let's do it. The other thing I said was, to every agent, same deal for everybody, absolute minimum, until we break even, then we can talk about it. I need the entire cast to come back. If anybody doesn't come, I can't do it. Everybody works for minimum. We brought that in for 575, and we paid back in three weeks. What year was that? What? What year was that, I'm sorry? 99. Okay. And it was nominated for three Tony Awards. And then I knew everything. And I knew exactly what I was doing. So I brought in another show the same year. It ain't nothing but the blues. 
which was a Crossroads Theater in New Brunswick production that went to the New Victory Theater that got a great review in the New York Times. And I moved it to Broadway for 950,000. How did I move a Broadway, a, a musical to Broadway? First, I found out the only available theater at that moment was what? Vivian Beaumont Theater, that the wonderful Bernie Gersten said, boy, if you can get it here, we'll take it because there's nothing to do to come in for a while because they had a big, a big show that tanked. Uh, again, the whole thing was already together. We moved it in for what it was. I believe it was 950,000 is what we produced it for. And uh, we lost it all, of course. Well, there's some stories though. I mean, I, I, I did want to, I did want to get to some of your commercial stuff. Um, Greg, you're welcome uh, to, to talk to Eric now. Hello. How could I, how could I possibly top that? Seriously. Don't stop <laughs> it. Just participate. That's what I'm here for. Um, since I am in your 23 year old shoes at the moment, writing, trying to find a job because I've literally applied everywhere that you've worked with. And also for the people that might watch this on YouTube and are in a similar position as I am, what is like your best piece of advice for a young professional, a young scrappy guy like myself or a young scrappy girl who wants to be a producer or any, you know, business professional in this industry? I'm going to, I'm going to answer for him. And then he's going to answer for himself. He's already said the best advice I've heard, which is don't do it for the money, do it for love, do it because you will love it and you, and you want to do it. I know that you have to find a way of, of earning money, but that, but that was the first message you gave to all of us. So, okay, Eric, uh, to you. Thank well, you. any contact you meet, hold on to. Anybody in this group who you think may be doing an interesting project that you would like to care about, volunteer some time or some effort. I heard today about uh, the War Brides, the Alzheimer's musical, the four short plays for Planet in Peril and so on. I'm thinking, boy, those are projects that I'd, you know, I'd like to hear more about. And if you like one of them, call up who's ever doing it and say, I don't know who you are, you don't know who I am, but can I help you do it? I, I make my living as a bartender right now, so, so you don't have to pay me for the first whatever. Let's see where it goes. Latch on to people, give them a hand, help them out with what they need, and that will come back to you in spades. That's one thing. Next thing, find some way to make a living that doesn't consist of theater any number of ways that that can be done. Uh, I know actors who are uh, legal paraprofessionals uh, who drop in and out as they can when they have time and they, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, there's no easy answer to that. You've got to figure that one out for yourself. And uh, here's another, another thing sort of fun to talk about. I have recently met a 98 year old composer in Queens woman if you go to her website, you can get to know her. She's extraordinary. Her name is Julie Mandel. Go to juliemandel.com. She is still writing. She worked for Frank Lesser in the 50s. She had Nat King Cole record her music. She's 98 years old. She, re she works every day at her piano. She never became a star. Lots of reasons. The one of which she thinks mostly is because she was a woman. And is even told, I can't believe you're a woman, you write like a man. And, and I am now trying to get on stage a musical review of a kind of a kind of a bio piece of her life and her work. It's so exciting to me to think that that can happen before she passes. 
she's 98 years old. Nobody has a clue who she is. But man, she loved her stuff. She had a, a, viola, a viola, viola concerto played recently at a festival in Venice. Uh, she had a flute thing done up at the University of Washington. She has hundreds and hundreds of musical pieces, and she still works every day to get them out there and keep up her contacts. So there's hope. If you're only 23, you have at least 90, uh, 70 years left until you hit it the big time. Godspeed to her, and thank you very much. Yeah. Like, let me just say, life is very long. And I just, just said to somebody today, Walt Whitman didn't get a poem published till he was 37. And who's the other person I just talked? Oh, Tom Paine didn't come to America till he was 37. And he was total disaster in, in England before then. The reason I brought this up is my friend who I'm helping is 37 and kind of crushed by life. And I'm saying, look, you got a whole life in front of you. So it's a long time coming. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Greg. I'm I'm going to uh, we, we now we've now gone an hour, which is more the time than you thought you were going to be able to. So I thank you so much for that. I appreciate all your time, and I appreciate all the the generous way that you shared so much with people. I'm going to go off with one comment. Okay. I feel honored that I was able to share time with this creative, committed, lovely bunch of theater family people. It's not like I'm teaching you anything. We just all keep going together. So thank you. You're welcome. And I um, just want to remind the room, we'd, we've been doing this basically as a, as a haven for people during COVID. And now that we're coming out of COVID, we're going to continue doing it virtually because we've developed uh, an audience, a community that is well beyond New York. And I can't do this live and still have people from Seattle and California and Malaysia and Australia and London and Barcelona. So we're going to keep doing this. In order to keep doing this, we have bills to pay. So everything's free if you can't afford anything. But if you can afford something, do consider giving us a donation. And I think if Joe Nelms is in the room, he's going to put our donation link in, in the chat. trudonate.com. There it is. So again... Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, consider starting off the new year with a, a, a little gift to True if you can. And if you can't, we still love you and we still welcome you and we're still happy to have you as part of the community. Thank you, Eric Krebs, for being with us. Can, and I, can I get back on for a second? Absolutely. You're here. When is your benefit? Benefit is March 20th. Okay. Because I have an empty theater called Theater 555, because we just postponed Romeo and Bernadette again, oh. which is the musical I'm working on. I was going to invite your benefit if it wants to go live to my theater, but okay, not this time. Yeah, we're, we're, we're virtual. We've got it all planned Fine. for virtual. We've got a whole team, whole team of people. Um, th thank you so much, though. I appreciate that. I'll find something, some other way to use your theater. I promise. <laughs> okay. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about something. We need to talk about anything at all. 
Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric Acid. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's my name is Prince Daniels Jr. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.